Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. It's August, which means for many states, they've kicked off their annual August roadside surveys to figure out how many pheasants and quail are out there on the landscape. And since it's August, it also means that bird hunting season, the best season of the year, is right around the corner. That's true in the state of Iowa, where Todd Bogenschutz has been the state's upland wildlife research biologist and farm bill coordinator for 27 years. Today, I'm joined by Todd and Jared Wickland, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's public relations manager and our former regional representative for the state of Iowa, for a conversation with Todd about how August roadside counts work. And uh, of course, we'll get a little sneak preview on Todd's insights on the Iowa bird numbers for the coming season ahead. Todd, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. Um, I, I, you know, I, I introduced you, Bogan Shuts. I've, uh, I've said your name 13 different ways over the years, Bogan Shoots, Bogan Shuts, and I suppose that's, um, that's somewhat something you're, you're used to, right? It, with a long last name, People tend to butcher it, don't they? Well, yeah. You know, in <laughs> high school, you know, you remember your first day in school and teacher go through roll call and and then they get to my name and it'd be Todd and a pause and I just raise my hand. <laughs> yeah, <that's me. laughs> what's the what's the worst anybody's ever butchered it? Is it something that stands out? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of German names have the Schultz, so people will put the L in it, and there's no L in it, so that's probably one of the bigger, you know, even spelling it, they'll do that and put it in there, but I'm like, no, no L in it, just just, just, just straight shuts, S-H-U-T-Z, shuts. And, and I mentioned in the intro that you've been the uh, Iowa bio, upland biologist for 27 years, and, you know, listeners can't see you. But I can. And you don't look all that old, honestly. For a guy that's been in that role for 27 years, I mean, what'd you start when you were 12? <laughs> no, actually, I started kind of on the late side. But let's just say bird hunting keeps you young, right? I mean. <laughs> well, I, I won't have to. I, will, I won't dive deep into your age. But just say uh, it, you should keep bird hunting because you look like you're in great shape and, and far younger than a guy that's got almost three decades of experience with the Iowa DNR. But let's start with the with your, with your background. Um, introduce yourself to a our listeners, undoubtedly Pheasants Forever members, uh, with Iowa being, you know, second largest state in terms of members uh, for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. We have nearly 20,000 members in the state of Iowa, and they undoubtedly know your name. Whether or not they can pronounce it's another story, but they they know your name, but they maybe haven't ever heard you talk before and, and don't know your backstory. So introduce yourself to uh, to to our listeners today. 
So yeah, so I'm currently actually on the state council as a director for one of the central regions. So still pretty active, involved with Pheasants Forever. Still active with my local chapter here too. Was president and banquet chair for ten to twelve years there. So pretty pretty tied in with Pheasants Forever. But uh, yeah, a lot of members know me. Um, <clears throat> you know, they call me by first name, and unfortunately, I can't say their first name. <laughs> I've got too many of them, like everybody says, you remember me? And I'm like, well, no, not really, but I meet a lot of people, so. But, uh, but yeah, yeah, I've been doing it, been doing it a long time. I mean, it's always been my, uh, my passion. So <clears throat> I grew up in uh, upstate New York on the Canadian border, actually. And so in my youth, did a lot of rough grouse hunting, rabbit, squirrel, you know, kind of the upland side of it. And uh, we did some pheasant hunting, but back then, well, I guess in New York still, it's kind of game farms. You know, they're one of the states that has a big game farm like Pennsylvania, and they just release birds. And so, you know, I can remember dad telling me, run down the field and shoot them dumb birds back in the cover so it's more sporting. And, you know, that was kind of my pheasant hunting growing up, but I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't, wasn't wild birds. Um, but, yeah, went to school in South Dakota and. You know, kind of stuck with that. Upland is always my passion. I've studied everything, waterfowl, big game, all of it. But upland birds is my passion. So, Which uh, um, university in South Dakota? Oh, the Jackrabbit, South Dakota State. <laughs> Go Rabbit. <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you end up in South Dakota all the way from New York? Uh, you know, I knew kind of what I wanted to do, want to get into the wildlife profession. And mm-hmm. so I'd actually applied to a lot of the schools out here. Um, Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, you know, North Dakota, you know, looking for any kind of master's projects that were open. And South Dakota had one that was on pheasants. I'm like, bingo, that's the one I want if I can get it. And fortunately, I got it. So that's just history. That's pretty cool. And you mentioned that you um, you've been a volunteer with the Pheasants Forever chapter for better part of a decade. What what chapter is that? Uh, Boone County Pheasants Forever. Okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you. Uh, that's you know terrific that um, you, you volunteer for the organization. It, as a state employee, does that it, did you have to jump any jump through any hoops to volunteer for a nonprofit like ours, or is it somewhat natural with the connection with your job and and uh, our organization's mission? Um, I, you know, the, the agency doesn't say anything about it in regards to, you know, what we do on our own time. So, you know, it's kind of, I don't, I don't have any work time, you know, associated with, with the chapter, but, um, yeah, I mean, we encourage a lot of our staff to, um, you know, work with our nonprofits, whether it's Pheasants Forever, Ducks Unlimited, Turkey Federation. So a lot of them are members of their local chapters. And so, you know, it's kind of a natural for me. I love upland bird hunting and pheasants. So why wouldn't I be? a part of that so yeah it, it it is wonderful we we have lots of examples like you of state um or soil and water conservation district employees who volunteer you know a lot of times they end up being like habitat chairs volunteers on on a committee and um, um so if you know to you and all the other folks out there i think about chris gold i think it's gold aid and in South Dakota, who's similar volunteer, there's a lot of folks that uh, are resource professionals who also volunteer. So, so if you're out there listening and you're like Todd, uh, uh, thank you very much for for being a part of the organization as a volunteer. Uh, so, 
SDSU, did you jump immediately to the Iowa DNR? Or was there a, um, a career stop in between? No, it's a, you know, if you want to get into the wildlife profession, it's pretty competitive because, you know, once folks usually get into these jobs, they don't leave till they retire. So there's not a lot of turnover. So, no, I actually worked uh, part time for the Minnesota DNR doing deer yard stuff up in the forest part of, uh, you know, did a little sharp tailed grouse work and up there and did a bunch of waterfowl banding with a crew out of Bemidji and, um, you know, did some loons. And so, you know, just trying to find that permanent job and Minnesota at the time wasn't hiring. So, um, you know, part of it uh, depends on your significant other too. My significant other was a fisheries biologist for the Minnesota DNR. So that kind of influenced a little bit of what you do, but no, I, my first job, I was hired in Indiana as a small game biologist. So pheasants, quail, rough grouse, squirrels, rabbits, all of them. Mm. Um, so I spent a year there in, in uh, Indiana, actually, as a small game biologist. And then the position in Iowa came open. And uh, that put us back closer to my wife's family in Minnesota. And so, yeah, pheasant biologist, that was kind of a position I uh, was looking for, especially in a prime pheasant state. So lucky enough to get it and been here ever since. And does your um, wife still work in fisheries in Iowa? Yes, she does. She's actually our aquatic uh, invasive species coordinator. So she's uh, in charge of all the things we don't want, you know, Eurasian carp and, you know, middle foil and (laughs) trying to keep all that bad stuff out. So you guys could carpool to uh, agency meetings. There you go. (laughs) But, you know, I'm on the better side, wildlife, you know, not the fish side. What do they say? Fish squeezers? That's right. uh, Matter of fact, when I was up in Bemidji, she was working fisheries up there, and that's what they were doing. They would strip suckers and stuff. So, you know, they had the the bait for uh, feeding the walleyes and and northerns and muskies they were growing up there. So, yeah, they they referred to her as a stripper, the local guys, when they were out (laughs) doing the nets. It, I, I, uh, Jared, I apologize. I'll get you into the conversation here. You're good. I got, I got some great stories about Todd from back in the day. When well, I say back in the day, I mean a dozen years ago. <laughs> well, that's what I, I wanted to um, touch on that for a moment because before you were the, um, the public relations manager for the organization, you spent um, a, a number of years in Iowa working with the chapters there. So. Um, I'm guessing you got a story or two about uh, about Todd as a chapter volunteer. Nothing bad. All good. All good, Todd. <laughs> um, you know, yes, I, when I moved down to Iowa um, a, almost a dozen years ago, uh, Todd's chapter in Boone County, uh, there was Mark Moore. There was other people involved in the chapter at that time who I became really good friends with. And his chapter in Boone County was actually one of the first uh, chapter meetings that I attended. And I, I have a vivid recollection. We were, in a, we were in a pole barn, and I believe Todd had just gotten back from a successful turkey hunt in the state of Kansas. And he made, uh, he made a fried turkey with a mustard <laughs> rub on the outside and like a lemon, uh, a lemon garlic marinade on the inside that was about to die for. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was very good. But he, uh, when I first met Todd, uh, you know, the... Pheasants Forever was a family affair. Um, I remember his, his wife and daughter uh, 
I'm not sure if they ever attended meetings, but they were certainly at the banquet and 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 working there. And uh, it's kind of come full circle now. I saw saw a picture of Todd's daughter. I think she's in college now. And my daughter just celebrated her uh, seventh birthday yesterday. I was I was uh, childless back in those days. So um, mm-hmm. Todd's always been a great volunteer. On uh, from a pro- professional standpoint, he's always been somebody that I've leaned on. Between him and and Nicole Davros from the Minnesota DNR, I tend to ask a lot of questions about certain things, whether it's podcasts or just uh, member questions that we might have. And Todd has always been a great resource for me. Um, you know, related to those types of uh, difficult, difficult questions, whether it's roadside counts or biology or other things out there. And one of the things that I, I love about Todd the most is that he's very research and, and uh, oriented and, and scientific in his approach. Uh, when you look at roadside counts and the data that he helps scramble together with um, the rest of his uh, biologist staff, um, the, the numbers don't lie. Um, I think you're, you're probably on, we can talk about this, Todd, but you're probably 60 years in the roadside counts now, maybe more than that, 70. Yeah. I mean, actually, you know, I think the roadside counts, it's, I don't know if one state initiated before the other, but I know Iowa was pretty early on. And so our first, uh, you know, standardized counts as a state were actually probably in the 1930s. Hmm. Um, you know, when the technique kind of got developed by a lot of the Midwest states, but uh, I don't know if I can claim we were first because there's not great records on it, but I think we were close to first, if not first. Um, but there's a lot of changes in those early years. So it was kind of standardized around 1960. So yeah, we have well over half a century now of kind of standardized counts. And I know we're going to get into it here, but um, I've always uh, enjoyed when, when I was working uh, in Iowa or working here, Todd still includes me on some of his data that he sends out. But when you look at spring weather and winter weather um, and where the amount of rainfall and snowfall uh, happen, uh, what the amounts were, you can really get a pretty good prediction of what pheasant populations and other upland birds and wildlife are going to do from year to year based on that data. And, and uh, Todd uh, just has has really good scientific facts to share, and I think we're going to get into that here um, in a little bit. But besides that, um, we worked on a couple different initiatives together. Um, I was Adopt a Wildlife Management Area. I know Todd was uh, a part of those conversations as well, where he talked about you know creating kind of township level wintering areas for pheasants and working on nesting covers. Well, we've worked on a lot of different things together uh, over my short. 12 years uh, at the Habitat organization. And uh, like I said, as a professional and as a volunteer, uh, I've relied on Todd for a lot of different things. And um, I appreciate his uh, his views, uh, especially when it comes to roadside counts for pheasants. Well, you, you've you teased it like 13 times in that. So we're, we're going to get into the nitty gritty and put um, Todd's expertise on display. Before we do that, uh, we'll transition into the roadside count discussion. I want to shout out to South Dakota Department of Tourism and South Dakota Game Fish and Parks. Uh, create your pheasant hunting story in a state loaded with tradition. Find public land maps and planning tools for a South Dakota adventure of your own at huntthegreatest.com. All right, roadside counts, the nitty gritty. Why August, Todd? 
Well, I mean, so there was some research done at Iowa State University in the mid-1950s to kind of evaluate that. And so actually in those early years, I mentioned the 30s, 40s, they were doing accounts in October. Hmm. I mean, sometimes pretty heavy frost on the ground. And and I think what just happened over time is, you know, the, the profession of wildlife management was pretty new, you know, pre-World War II. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it was kind of a, a blossoming science with Leopold and everything. And uh Paul Arrington. And so I think people are just starting to notice that variability. And so, yeah, in the 1950s, the uh, fellow by the name of Eugene Conlin did a master's project at Iowa State and basically ran. He had two routes and he ran them from August to the end of October under every kind of weather conditions you could imagine and, and then evaluated the data. And the conclusion he came to was that August uh, usually produced the best counts and the most consistent counts. And hmm. uh, as also the broods were still together, you know, so counting the broods um, is pretty important because it gives you a good indication of how the nesting season went. Um, the counts that they did in October, you know, the broods were broken up and actually the young pheasants looked like the adults. You couldn't even tell them apart. Hmm. So you couldn't tell which ones were young of the year and which ones were left over from the previous year. And so, it's kind of the foundation for the basics of kind of how we do it today and how the surveys run. So Iowa is a state that also counts quail at the same time. Is it, uh, is it apples to apples, pheasants and quail and how they behave in August in terms of a roadside count or is it, um, or is there a difference? And the reason I'm asking and thinking about in Minnesota and Wisconsin here recently, they just released rough grouse, drumming counts. And, you know, a lot of hunters maybe don't realize that that's apples to oranges in terms of uh, pheasants and rough grouse drumming counts versus August roadside counts. And what I mean by that is the spring drumming counts for rough grouse is just adult bird carryover. It doesn't have anything to do with broods on the ground. So you don't get a real good indication of how successful the reproduction season has been for rough grouse. It's just sort of a indicator of carryover into the winter and how many birds are on the landscape. Whereas pheasants, August roadside counts, tend to be a much better, in, at least in my non-biologist impression, a much better indicator because it does take into account both carryover of adults and broods sort of measuring success of reproduction. And I'd assume based on how quail um, are counted, it'd be a similar, more similar in terms of um, apples to apples with pheasants, but maybe I'm not, maybe I'm missing something there. Is it more similar or is it different? Yeah, I think there's always a preference to do things later if the species, you know, are countable mm -hmm. after reproduction. So the challenge with rough grouse, like you mentioned, is they're very easy to survey during the spring drumming season because obviously the males are sounding off. But right. um, <clears throat> I don't know how you would count broods on rough grouse. They're not something that would come to the roads. There's not a lot of roads in the forest a lot of times to do counts across the range, say. So yeah, some of the surveys that are done are kind of 
Uh, prairie chickens are much the same way. We do right. counts on the booming grounds because the males are sounding off and, mm-hmm. you know, it's difficult to count them with roadside counts later because they don't have the tendencies to come to the roadsides. But um, And some states count quail whistle counts, which are spring, similar to, you know, it's the leks for the prairie chickens or the drumming for the rough grouse. But then, it, so I am guessing that's a heck of a lot more similar to you know, doesn't take into account anything having to do with what broods are out on the ground. But Iowa, um, I don't think you guys do whistle counts in Iowa, do you? It's all roadside counts? We used to. We used to do whistle counts. We used to do pheasant crowing counts. Of course, we did the roadside counts. Um, We used to do some winter sex ratio counts. But, uh, you know, that's the value of data. Over time, we started looking at those. And the other big survey that we do is hunters in the fall. Hunters mm-hmm. are a big survey, and so they go out there and harvest birds, and so we look at a lot of count data and how it relates to how hunters did. And, uh, you know, it was probably in the mid-'80s that our agency looked at all that stuff, and they said, you know what, there's only so much time in a day, and we only have so much staff. And the roadside counts correlated much better with pheasant hunter harvest than spring whistle counts for quail or spring crowing counts for pheasants, Hmm. which like you said, makes sense because it's really an indication of only males and just kind of how they survived the winter and maybe how hunters were successful last year doesn't tell you anything about reproduction. So probably not a shock that the roadside counts are a much better correlation to what hunters see in the fall because it's taking into both winter survival and reproduction. So, our agency dropped those other counts because um, the roadside count data provided much better information. So Hmm. um, you mentioned quail. So, you know, the work that was done in Iowa in the 1950s by uh, Dr. Conlon was strictly targeted at pheasants. He didn't really look at anything else, but um, because we're out there and we're seeing quail and we're seeing um, huns and we're seeing cottontails and jackrabbits, we might as well count them. Mm -hmm. Um, but nobody's actually done any published research to see, you know, the conditions that we use for pheasants, do they work as well for the other species? Mm. Um, but what we can do is look at the trends that we do see on the roadside counts and how does that relate with quail harvest and hun harvest and rabbit harvest and actually they correlate pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think it's pretty good. The survey is a pretty good index of, you know, what's going on there. You know, a lot of people ask me how many pheasants are out there. And I'm like, well, that's impossible. I mean, they're just too good at hiding. And uh, there's no way you can tell it. I mean, you can make estimates with a lot of assumptions. But um, so the roadside survey is really just a massive index. You know, we have two routes in every county. Um, They're run on all on gravel roads, 30 miles long, under the same conditions at the same time of the year every year. So it's a really good snapshot of, um, you know, what's out there. Mm-hmm. And so you compare that to last year because it was done with the same instructions and the same guidance. And it really gives you a pretty good idea whether the population's the same, went up, went down. I can't tell you to the letter that Iowa has 9 million pheasants or, you know, that's not, but I can tell you pretty accurately whether there's more than last year, less than last year, what the distribution is, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, Related, related to the, to the, to the roadside counts um, and the routes that they do. 
I know, you know, some of those change over time. Do you guys account for uh, like when housing projects come in or paved roads come in, that type of thing? Or do you try to keep, do you try to keep the routes the same as they've always been to have that consistent count over time? I get that question a lot and I don't, I don't know what the answer is. So it's probably a good time, time to ask it. So that's a really good question. So, you know, a lot of folks think uh, the survey is just so we can tell hunters what's out there. Well, that that is important and hunters like that. Um, but, you know, we really use it to monitor the distribution of the population. And then we can do research on the impacts of habitat, the arrangement of those habitats on the counts, how weather impacts the population. So, I view it much more valuable from that side. Most hunters don't see that. They just want to see what's the counts, where's the best places to hunt, and I can get that too, but I like the other stuff in the background. So to get back to more of the research side of it, you know, related to land use and weather variables and things like that, the routes are set up to remain in place year after year without changes. Now, for safety of our staff and and to avoid paved roads because there's so much traffic on our paved roads, the birds get scared off. So the routes are mainly on gravel roads. The only time we change a route is if the staff tell me a road got paved or if you know a bridge got washed out and they're not gonna replace it and we have to change it. But So we tend to keep the routes the same and that's very important because if we want to know how the landscape's changing and habitat's changing, you keep the route static. And as the habitat changes around that route, you know, that tells you what kind of impacts it has on the birds. So obviously, you know, when CRP came on the landscape, you know, we were able to detect that hmm. on the routes where CRP happened to land next to the routes. And obviously, we don't see much benefit, you know, if a route doesn't have CRP next to it. So we can look at things like urban sprawl. How does that affect our counts? How does, you know, maybe if eventually we go to something like biomass crops or ethanol or something, and that starts appearing on the landscape because we have the routes and they're standardized and they don't change, we can determine, you know, how those things impact the population. So I do get a little pushback on that because, you know, these routes have been set up, many of them, like I said, maybe since 1930. It's a long, long time for 19, things to change. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 1960. And so it was a good count. You know, it was a fun route to run in the 60s, you know, count 100 plus birds on it. Today, somebody counts six. <laughs> they're like, I want to change this so I can count more. I'm like, well, if we change the routes to just where you count birds, that's really skewing. And I can't learn too much from the data because... You know, you're, you're just constantly moving the route to where you count birds. That doesn't help me determine, you know, how habitats and arrangements of habitat impact the population. So, gotcha. Um, That's a good explanation. So, yeah. you've alluded to this a number of times, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, so, I'll ask it point blank. There, there's a lot of debate uh, state to state about the value of roadside counts, whether, you know, it, how much it costs to to implement the the counts and assess it, or um, you know the political whims of of what's happening in a particular state related to to releasing counts. How valuable are the roadside counts to you as a biologist that's been in your role as the upland game specialist in Iowa for twenty seven years? It seems it seems like 
it's something that's pretty critical to your um, assessment of the situation for upland birds. But tell me in your own words what you what the importance of the the roadside counts. So yeah, I think it's pretty super important. You know, I think from a season setting perspective, um, a lot of folks think that maybe we change seasons or not, but we have enough research on the birds and the impacts of harvest that we don't necessarily use the count data to set annual seasons because, you know, we've done enough research projects with radio telemetry and other stuff to kind of understand that part. But more important side of the surveys, in my opinion, is, you know, just letting hunters know what's out there in the distribution. They find that really valuable, but also because of their scale being statewide, hmm. that's really valuable because when you do a research project and you radio a hundred birds or something per se, usually you're working in a township or even smaller. Mm -hmm. So it's a very tiny fraction of the habitat in your state and what's going on. So the, these large landscape scale surveys where we can look at weather across a range of variables, how the landscape is arranged. Some, some counties have a lot of timber, some don't, some it's very interspersed, some it's not. And so all those things are important in determining, you know, how habitats benefit species and how they utilize them. And hmm. to me, that's the real value of kind of these you know, scales that are on basically a statewide scale where we have good data and can make uh, good estimates of what's going on. So let's talk about the logistics of putting a statewide roadside survey together. How's that happen? How many routes? Who's doing the counting? Do you have to train people so they know what they're looking for? Like, Walk us through the basics. Yep. So, I mean, you know, most of our staff, our wildlife staff, obviously have some kind of basic college training. You know, they either had undergrad course in wildlife. Um, some of them may have masters. Most of them are just undergrads, but they've all had that basic training. And so one of the things you learn in those courses is about surveys and indexes like this. So they're, so, they're DNR employees? Because I some states... I, aren't they rural mail, mail carriers that are counting? Yep. And so that's, that's a little different. Yep. Some states opt to do that, especially the Western states where they don't have the due conditions and they feel that the roadside counts the way we do them kind of in Iowa Minnesota and South Dakota don't work as well. Hmm. Um, so actually there's a graduate student in Iowa state right now that's doing a multi-state project with including states like Washington, Idaho, New Mexico, Kansas, Nebraska, us, the Dakotas, looking at the roadside counts and actually kind of trying to dive into that question. Mm. Can this survey work even out west there where they generally never have do? Can yeah. it still be a good? So those other states you mentioned do use rural mail carriers, but then that's untrained people. And it's kind of happenstance while they're doing the work. Did you count it? You know, how good is that data? Because if you don't have standardized effort all the time, that makes the data almost worthless. You know, one day I decide to pay a lot of attention, the next day I don't. Well, what's that really mean? Yeah. You know, so I our routes uh, our routes are run by conservation officers and our staff. I'm reminded of a story of a, a person that was a, a would count drumming counts for rough grouse in the spring, and 
when he retired the next year, a new person moved in and the counts for the drumming counts in this particular state and region, <laughs> I won't name where, went through the roof and they determined old Bill was deaf and had been deaf for a while. So, you know, there's <laughs> the human variable can be a component there for these counting uh, situations, right? Oh, any survey that's auditory, like a crowing count or a quail whistle count or a grouse drumming count, yeah, that, you know, that's one more little piece that throws variation into the data. And, you know, you can't just assume that everybody, you know, I've sat there on uh, crowing counts or whistle counts and, you know, had a bird sound off and three people point at the birds <laughs> over there and the next person points over there and then come to find out that person can't hear in one ear. Right, so, right. It sounds sounds like a new sound gear partnership coming to <laughs> yeah. fruition across the, across the range. So that's, that's a nice aspect of the roadside count. It's totally visual. Mm -hmm. um, so you're not, you know, kind of, so, you know, usually to drive a vehicle down the road, you have to have some vision. Mm. <laughs> so hopefully, uh, you know, but he, there's still, you know, some people drive 30 miles an hour when they should be driving 15. And so you might miss it. So, you know, you've always, you've always got that human element, but they, they all have training. Um, you know, we we did some virtual training with our staff this year just because, you know, a lot of the staff have done these for a number of years. But, you know, we have turnover and we have new kids coming on and, hmm. you know, they're pretty excited about it. And so, you know, just giving them guidance about, you know, how do you count broods and how do you record the data and that kind of stuff. So you touched on do the role of do explain that a little bit further and how that plays into Iowa's counting. So that goes back to the study that Dr. Conlin did in the 50s. You know, he ran two routes, <clears throat> like I said, from August through October and looked at all kinds of weather variables. He looked at humidity. He looked at dew. He looked at temperature, wind speed. Is the sun shining? Did it rain? Um, he looked at all that stuff. And uh, the thing that seemed to predict the counts the best was dew. Hmm. I mean, so, you know, his data showed that so he used a dew block, you know, how do you measure dew? And it's actually really a difficult thing to do. But back at that time, you know, we didn't have computers and all the science we have today. And so it was a wooden block with a special paint. And, you know, when you had a heavy dew, the, the droplets got a lot bigger and started running together. And versus a morning with no dew, it was dry. And then you had in between. And so it was just basically this picture of all these different dew you know formations on this block and then they coded them from zero to like eight hmm. eight being real heavy zero being dry and what dr conlin found was that uh, in the 1950s so remember he had two routes these are the only two routes he ran used the blocks the whole time when he had due readings of six or higher he averaged six birds a mile and on those same routes when he had a dew reading of one, virtually no dew, he averaged one pheasant a mile. Hmm. So, you know, the population's there. So that's really what's what's really, you know, that research is the foundation piece that, that kind of led to the way we do the surveys today. So staff are instructed. We don't use the dew blocks anymore. Um, we just kind of tell them to look at the dew, mm -hmm. the dew conditions and record it as light, medium, or heavy. But we tell staff, Look for a morning with a heavy dew, no wind, sun shining. 
those are kind of the three king. You know, if it's rained, you don't want to run the routes. If it's foggy and you can't see far, you don't want to run the routes. But so, an ideal ideal morning is that super soaker dew, mm -hmm. dead calm, full sun. And do they do it once, or do they run the same route multiple times to get there? Like an average. So that's uh, that's actually what the the student at Iowa State now that's looking at it is trying to. Um, so this you know the do thing and running the routes multiple times that's all getting at what we call in the, in the research side of things detectability. Mm. And it's, so one of the big questions about surveys is to be really meaningful you have to detect the same number of birds each time. I'm not saying that you have to detect all the birds, but say that you run a route and you detect 25% of the birds that could be on the road that morning. Well, if that's how many you detect the next morning and the next morning, that's not a problem. Mm -hmm. It's consistent. Mm -hmm. So the problem would be if one morning you run the route and you detect 25% of the birds and the next day you detect 50, mm. if that's bouncing around, then what does the count really mean? Because right. So that's what the student at Iowa State is trying to look at now. So Dr. Conlon's theory was because what he saw was that heavy dews made that um, detectability fairly constant, hmm. you know, and then the counts were seemed to drop off and be variable when you had less dew. So he was looking at weather variables. Um, to determine, you know, where detectability was most consistent. Now, today, with today's science and computers, we know that if you run the routes multiple times, you can estimate detection and see if it's varying. So hmm. that's actually what the grad student at Iowa State is looking at now. We are actually doing, we're doing five runs of the routes under various weather conditions because he wants to know, is do as important as Dr. Conlon said? Hmm. And then if we run them multiple times, do we get better information than we're currently getting? And so it's going to be interesting to see what he comes up with. I'd like to briefly touch on on time of day too. It's it's obviously done in the morning. Is there is there a specific time frame that everybody starts at, or is it a is it sort of a shotgun start between you know when the sun when the sun is coming up, or what's the what's the standard there if there is one? So Dr. Conlon looked at that and the counts definitely decline as the morning moves on. And so, you you know, he plotted a line and it was downward. So by two hours after sunrise, you're counting much less birds than you did at sunrise. So the standard for most of the states is to start at sunrise and try to wrap up uh, within two hours of whatever survey or method you're running. So you touch on when it's really dewy, the pheasant hen and the brood, wants to kind of get out on the road, shake off, dry off. Is that similar for um, a quail in the in a quail brood that they want to get out on the road or is there a different sort of um, habit there? So that's kind of what the grad student at Iowa State's looking at mm -hmm. now because we're recording quail. The states are recording quail and Hans and a few of the Western states are recording California quail. Mm. Obviously, we don't have them here, but they're curious to know if that relationship's there as well. So we're going to find that out, hopefully, if there's enough data on it that uh, the student will be able to tell us. Great. Looks it's like so we're going to have to have that person on at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you'd be glad to. Um, so I think routes are generally 30 miles in duration for each 
each counter, right? Is there any reason behind that 30 mile number or is it just sort of that's that's the way it's worked based on geographic range of where people live um, in, in your uh, colleagues in the state? Yeah, I, you know, some states do 25 miles. I don't know that there's any perfect science okay. uh, to it um, other than, you know, if you drive 15 miles an hour in two hours, you know, mm -hmm. when the counts are starting to fall off, you've hit 30 miles. That might be the. Right. So we've looked at some of the data. I think, you know, honest to God's truth, we could probably run 20 mile routes and probably get similar information. Mm. Um <clears throat> Not something we've changed because because we have a half century of data this way, and then you change it, then it's not really comparable to your historic data. So there's you know some you know anytime you make a change to a survey that's been run for a long time, you got to always look at that historical perspective because if you change it, then it's not really comparable to what you used to do. Sure. So and then you can't plot it, you can't you know make assumptions about today versus then because you're not doing it the same way. So there's always those kinds of not saying that you shouldn't change things, but you want to have good reasoning for changing it if you do. So I got to assume when you've got, you know, the better, you know, better than 200 people out running these 30 mile routes, you hear some pretty interesting stories of things other than pheasants and quail that they see along the way. Anything, and you're grinning from ear to ear right now. Um, <laughs> any anecdotes or stories of things that uh, folks have seen in Iowa over the years that immediately come to mind, whether it be just funny or really interesting? Oh, yeah. I think staff put stuff in the comments just to see if I'm paying attention, <laughs> you know, like four Black Panthers. Or, you know, I, I saw Bigfoot today and <laughs> we ought to have a season and, and uh, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, I, uh, I catch a few of them. And I mean, the staff are generally pretty good. I, I remember one year and we won't name any names, but um, <laughs> You know, first time they'd run the survey. And so one of the ways that we age, you know, because we asked them to count the broods, how many chicks and how old are they? And as an age thing, we say sparrow sized, mm -hmm. you know, two weeks old, metal lark sized, four weeks old, you know, dove sized, five week old, pigeon sized, you know, eight weeks old, crow sized, 10 weeks old, you know, or almost adult. So makes it easy for them, you know, just what's the, what's the size of the chicks? Are mm -hmm. they sparrow size, pigeon size? Well, he did the survey and saw that and started counting all the pigeons and crows he's got. And, uh, you know, first time doing it. So, you know, didn't, didn't read the instructions probably as well as he should have. And, and other staff got a hold of what, <laughs> what he did. <laughs> I think he got a lot of ribbon that year. <laughs> Anything just shocking that somebody saw out cruising? Like I'm thinking there's been time to time where a cougar has been hit in Iowa, you know, tr you know, a young male on the move from the Black Hills. Um, anything that's been, wow, that that's interesting. No, I, I can't say that, you know, staff do report, you know, a lot of them will count doves. And occasionally if somebody sees a bobcat or a red fox, they'll make a note of it mm. in the comments or something like that. You know, Northeast Iowa, we've had a black bear or two come down from Minnesota, Wisconsin. And, you know, if luck would have it, uh, you know, they'll mention that on it. Mm. Um, but no, not nothing that uh, uh, jumps out. Uh, 
particularly. Okay. As it relates to road size, before we transition to get your state of the state for, for Iowa's pheasants and quail, um, anything that we should have asked you about roadside counting that's important either to you as a biologist or should be important to bird hunters out there? Anything that we missed along the way? No, I think actually we've covered a lot of the survey. Um, you know, we do the counts. You know, a lot of people ask, why do we do the counts the first two weeks of August? And that's really, um, the broods are about half grown with a normal hatch. And so, you know, when the chicks first hatch and they're fluff balls or sparrow size, mm -hmm. you know, the hens aren't as prone to bring them out in the open. Sure. You know, but when they get half grown, they're much more comfortable with that. Um, of course, if we waited later, they'd start being big enough that they start breaking up out of the broods mm. and then it'd be difficult to count them again. So that's kind of why the August window there is. It's just kind of about the right time, you know, for the hens comfortable bringing them to the roadsides, but they're still together. So we get a good count. And so that's kind of why that August time frame shows up from state to state. Re related to that um, kind of average hatching window and growth. Um, I know there's some areas of the states that got a lot of snow and we'll get into that, but it was a pretty early spring in a lot of different locales, um, you know, Minnesota included, uh, across the pheasant range. And I know you typically, you typically send out a note to staff, or maybe you just keep note of it, uh, of when you, when you hear your first brood report, do you, can, can you share maybe if you, if you had one of those this year and what, what time of year it was, was it, you know, mid mid-May or did you not hear much hatching till June in the state of Iowa? Where, where did things fall? Yeah, so, um, you know, peak hatch for us is usually around June 10th to the 15th, but obviously it's a bell-shaped curve. You got maybe some older hens that survived that, you know, are a little more experienced and start earlier, but, you know, most of your birds that are hatching that year are probably going to be first-time nesters just hatched last year. Mm -hmm coming into the first nesting season. But uh, most years I get my first report of a brood around May 20th to 25th. Um, so I was kind of expecting that this year, but no, actually I didn't have my first brood till about June 1st, you know, about five five days later than normal. But, um, you know, you figure if, uh, if they, you know, the broods I get reported to me on May 20th, and there's not many, you know, these are the first broods that staff are seeing doing normal doing normal field work um they're obviously tiny tigers mm -hmm. you know maybe they can make a short 10 10 foot flight if they can fly at all um so you figure they're about a week old um so they actually hatched seven days before that takes about 20 days to incubate that nest and then 10 days for her to lay the eggs before she starts incubating so you know, that tells you about when she put the first egg on the ground was probably back there in early April, which is pretty early because mm -hmm. most of our nesting, we tend to think, <clears throat> excuse me, starts, you know, kind of late April into May is when nesting, you know, they're dropping their eggs, you know, getting ready to nest. You know, a lot of people don't realize they don't start incubating till they lay a full clutch. So they'll lay an egg, cover it. You know, maybe they have the resources to lay an egg the next day. Maybe they skip a day, put a second egg in. She leaves the nest. So they're unincubated there for the for the first basically two weeks. Um, you know, most pheasant nests, first nests are 12 eggs. 
they can lay an egg about every 1.3 days. So, mm. um, not quite every day, but pretty close. Mm. Um, you know, then she sits on the full clutch. And the reason she has to do that, she wants them to hatch all at the same time. If she started incubating the first net egg when she laid it, and then, yeah. <laughs> you know, then the last egg was 14 days later, chicks would hatch, you know, uh, across a two week span. Well, that, they can't do that. So that's why they lay them all at first. And then, so they all hatch at the same time. And, mm. So, yeah. So, as we think about, or as I think about pheasants and quail in the state of Iowa, it, to me, it's the most volatile state over the history that I've had at Pheasants Forever in 18 years. And I think about your career there, 27 years. You, you've been there pretty much since the beginning of CRP till today. And you, well, I'm not quite that old. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. 1985 is the start of CRP. So you would have been, you started in the, the late nineties, I suppose at uh, mid nineties. Yeah. So, 85. I, I was still in high school, just graduating. So, all right, I so, I so I, I'm stretching it out a little too much, but you've seen, you've seen years where Iowa was harvesting a million plus roosters to, you know, it's in that window of two to 300,000 roosters a year now. Even like, I think two, three years ago, uh, I think you were quoted, if you're ever going to hunt quail in the state of Iowa, this is the best year in, in three decades, you know? So it's been, Iowa's been the epicenter of, you know, habitat ups and downs. Um, give us kind of an overview of, of what 20. 21 looks like considering you know the winter jared mentioned pretty snowy cold in iowa heading into spring i know the drought is impacting iowa maybe not to the extent of the dakotas but but you live there i don't so tell tell me about um where what conditions are like as we uh as we are in early august right now so yeah, that's where the roadside data really comes into play because half a century of count data, I've also got half a century of NOAA weather data to compare those two and see how the one relates to the other. And so if we plot our winter snowfall statewide, uh, anytime we go over 31 inches for a statewide average, uh, the counts have essentially not increased mm. and most likely have gone down. So this past winter, our statewide average was 33 inches. Wow. Huh. So we're we're right there. So it certainly wasn't a mild winter for us. Uh, you know, we've had winters with 50 inches, so mm -hmm. it wasn't certainly one of our worst, but it wasn't a cakewalk winter, um, that's for sure. In the springtime, we've seen that uh, anytime our rainfall is over about 8.1 inches, that our population is probably going to go down normal rainfall for us is seven inches in April and May, kind of the peak of the nesting season. Um, this year, I think our average statewide was um, around six. Mm. So one of the driest springs we've seen since 1994. So that usually bodes well because our counts usually go up mm -hmm. when we're dry. Um, just because we tend to have more rainfall than the Dakotas do. You know, you go farther west, they have less rainfall right. in the spring. We have more, so they tend to have better pheasant 
nest hatches when they're on the normal side to wetter side, we tend to have better hatches on the normal to drier side, just, just because where we fall geographically in the country. So, so for Iowa, yeah, we've got kind of the negative winter, but the good spring. Mm -hmm. So where's that going to average out? You know, from a statewide perspective, when I run our weather model, it kind of said status quo to maybe a slight increase. Okay. Um, we had a lot of snow and ice in southeast Iowa last winter to the point where adult men were walking on it and not breaking through um, a foot of snow and ice. So I'm thinking our quail numbers will be cut in half. Mm, that's significant. <laughs> Pheasant numbers, they're a bigger bird, a little more robust. Mm -hmm. They travel farther, so it may impact them as well. Um, northwest Iowa was kind of an average winter to a little bit below average. And, uh, you know, they had a good nesting spring. So I'm thinking counts could be up quite a bit there. Mm. Okay. So I think it really depends this year in Iowa. And so roadside counts will tell us, you know, I'm, I'm pretty confident that our quail counts will be down um, just based on the weather we had. And, you know, quail are limited to the southern third of Iowa, any huntable numbers. That's our best quail range. And they had a lot of snow and ice and below zero weather, which is unusual for southern iowa which we call our banana belt <laughs> you know <laughs> usually they don't get below zero often down there and we had two to three weeks of it so that's hard on quail it's kind of the northern fringe of the range but um yeah i'm getting pretty optimistic reports from folks in northern hmm. iowa on pheasants so what was responsible for the boom in quail numbers um that i'm remembering just a couple of years ago was that a series of mild winters yeah, so 14, 15, 16, 17 were, yeah, basically we had virtually no winter or very mild winters to average winters across the quail range consecutively. Mm -hmm. We just saw good overwinter survival of the hens. Um, you know, they did pretty well nesting and the population went higher than, than I thought possible with the current habitat we had. Mm. So just goes to show you that... Uh, you know, Mother Nature can do it. You know, of course, if we put good habitat out there, we can do it too. But the habitat is, you know, quail need good shrubby cover. So think of raspberry thickets, dogwoods, just stuff that you got to get on your hands and knees to crawl through. Sure. That kind of habitat is way less today than we had in 1960, just because the way farming's changed, less livestock, a bunch of factors. So I just didn't think we had the habitat to get to numbers that high again, but mother nature smiled and mm. uh, you don't need that kind of habitat if you don't have a winter, <laughs> yeah. you know? So basically we were experiencing Southern Missouri type weather up in Iowa and uh, man, they did amazingly well. Mm. Bob, you but mentioned, whoops, sorry. 2018 was a bad winter and <laughs> down we went. Mm. <laughs> So, Bob, you mentioned um, sort of the, the volatility of Iowa and, and the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows. And I saw that a lot when I was there as a staffer because I came in at a time and, and Todd can probably speak to this. I think it was it was either 07 through 2012 or 08 through 2013. We had five winters and springs in a row in that particular time frame. And I started there end of 2009, early 2010 where I think it was over 40 inches of snow for five consecutive years. You can correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, but I remember those. I remember looking at your data. I still have it saved on my computer. And then 
Bob mentioned, you go back in time where Iowa was just the epicenter uh, of, of upland hunting, where I think you guys had about 20, 20, I think 25 years in a row where the state was harvesting at a million birds or over that for a long period of time. And then you, you, you throw in the, the ebb and ebbs and flows of, of CRP and the habitat in the state and uh, you add weather in there and then started to have some good things happen. Uh, pollinator habitat, I think, added a, added a, a nice mixture to the state, um, you know, for the, for the diversity and structure of habitat that they had that I think helped add uh, pheasants and, and, and broods and just good nesting cover. So yeah, it's been uh, it's been an interesting state, and I enjoyed the time when I was there. But I'll tell you what, when the weather cooperates um, and we have habitat and landscape in Iowa, I would submit to to folks listening that there's not a there's not a better state for for upland hunting. Um, it can be dynamite. In the last couple of years, I didn't get down there last year, but the the two to three years previous, there was a lot of birds in the landscape, and I can attest to that from some of the the public areas that I that I hit in west uh west central and, and northwest Iowa. it was it was phenomenal um i'm looking up as we're talking crp enrollment uh state by state and i think i found it um it, it looks like iowa currently has 1.6 million acres uh enrolled in crp and, and todd's nodding his head in affirmative that that's the right number i found um on your state plan for for pheasants and quail in the state of Iowa, what's what's the magic number? Is there a magic number for CRP acres that you would like to see on the landscape for a healthy population of pheasants and quail in your state? Certainly, we don't want to see less than that. So, you know, that's I go back to the roadside survey. So I plotted that against our habitat data in the state back to the 1960s. And so for us to harvest a million roosters, we need to have somewhere around four to five million acres of grassy habitats. And by grassy habitats, I mean small grains, hay or CRP. Mm -hmm. Those are really the habitats that produce pheasants. So just prior to the CRP program starting in Iowa, um, we were dipping well below that. And we had some of our all-time low counts in like 82, 83, 84, because our habitat base had fallen to around three and a half million acres. There was no CRP at that point. It was just hay and small grains. Mm. And so those, those were the first years where Iowa fell below a million bird harvest. Well, then CRP started in 1985, and we put 2.2 million acres of CRP on the landscape in about five years. And, of course, our harvest shot up to one and a half million birds, mm -hmm. you know, because then our habitat statewide had jumped back up to five million acres. But, you know, things change, as you guys know, and, uh, you know, by the late 90s, you know, they started rolling back CRP a little bit, and we're still seeing a loss of hay and small grains. Those fields are converted to corn and beans, which don't produce pheasants. Um, so right now in the state, we're sitting back about where we were in 83 now at about 3.8 million acres, and so... That 1.6 you mentioned in CRP is a godsend for us because, I mean, it's really where a lot of our pheasants are being grown is in CRP now. Mm. So 
I mean, our peak enrollment was 2.2 million acres. I'd like to see us get back to there, but mm -hmm. uh, probably not possible with the current caps. But uh, hopefully Pheasants Forever and the other NGO partners are, uh, are going to work toward bumping that cap up in the next farm bill. We'll see. So but, uh, say yeah. that number again, 2.2 million is... 2.2 million is our all-time enrollment, so I'd like to see us get back there. Okay. The uh, the National Pheasant Plan has just uh, done a revision, and so this is the 24 states yep. in the country that kind of have pheasants, and their recommendation is nationwide we need to see about 45 million acres of CRP on the landscape if we want numbers similar to what we saw in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. And currently the CRP enrollment is 20, 25 million acres. So, so you know, we got a lot to, to put on the ground if we want to kind of bounce numbers back. Well, and it, you know, we've talked a lot about CRP and largely private land. You know, I, I think about the walk-in programs across the country in IHAP, Iowa Habitat Access Program. Do I get that correct? To, yep, to, that's correct. to me, that Nebraska's open fields and waters, those two walk-in programs are the class of the country of building on top of CRP and adding an access component, improving the habitat and then opening up to hunters. You, you have an absolute gem in IHAP for, for public lands hunters. And, and, you know, we haven't touched on your, your wildlife management areas as well there's there's lots of opportunities for and wpas a lot of people forget that there's a lot of wpas in the state of iowa it's part of the prairie pothole region as well so so there's opportunities in iowa for a person to take a road trip and and find pheasants and quail aren't there oh yeah i mean the last couple of years uh, you know we harvested three hundred thousand roosters last year um, the year before that was 285 and then over 300,000 the year before. And so, you know, I had hunters telling me that they were coming from South Dakota and stopping in Iowa on the way back and did better in Iowa than they did in South Dakota. So um, if you do your homework and know what good habitat looks like, um, yeah, I've not had any hunters actually complaining to me much at all in the last couple of years. If, uh, uh, you know, if you look at our maps and and know what good habitat looks like, there's uh, a lot of birds. Um you know, I've said the last three years that uh, part of our harvest is determined by the number of hunters as well. Mm -hmm. And as Jared mentioned, we had those bad years and our hunter numbers declined. And uh, now that our numbers have come back up, our pheasant numbers, but our hunter numbers have come up some, but not as much as I thought. So based on our roadside counts, we could be shooting half a million roosters. Oh, wow. But I only have the hunters to shoot about 300,000. Mm. If we want to shoot a half million roosters, I need probably 70, 80,000 hunters and we only have 50 or 60,000 mm. and we used to have over 100,000. Yeah, that that typing you hear in the background is Bob purchasing a license yeah, right well, now. <laughs> well, it is, I, I think of Iowa uniquely. So two things, two thoughts. Uh, growing up in the upper peninsula of Michigan, there's a few pheasants, but not really any to hunt. Um, so I, I came to Minnesota for school. And right after I got out of school, I had a couple buddies that ended up in northern Iowa. And I learned to pheasant hunt in northern Iowa in the, the Garner, Britt, um, out of Mason City area, where a couple of 
fellow Youpers, uh, ended up working in Mason City, and I'd travel down from the Twin Cities when I was working in baseball, and um, we'd hunt uh, public land in, in the northern tier of uh, Iowa, and it was it was wonderful. The, the other thing that I think is underappreciated and honestly underpromoted by the state of Iowa, um, it, particularly tourism, not Utah, but it is the the mixed bag opportunity, pheasants and quail. Um, I think Kansas and Nebraska kind of, you know, they, they tout the mixed bag pretty readily and, and they have great, you know, unique opportunities to hunt pheasants, quail, chickens. You, if you spend the time and figure it out, you can have as good a mixed bag pheasant and quail hunt in Iowa as anywhere in the world. And I, I think that that's something that Iowa tourism, if you're listening, you, you, you got an opportunity there with, uh, with all the bird hunters to sort of help them find um, just a marvelous uh, pheasant and quail, bobwhite quail mixed bag that, that exists in the state of Iowa. Otherwise, Jared's going to just go do that over and over and over by himself. <laughs> what do you think of that assessment, Todd? Is that, is that accurate? Um, yeah, well, our quail numbers would probably be real low. So this probably year. Not maybe this year, but certainly uh, some previous years, they're absolutely, you know, they'll bounce back. Um, we'll have a mild winter. The amazing thing about quail is they can explode when conditions are right. So just how they're geared. So, but yeah, I think there's a, a lot of lost opportunity, especially in our rural areas, you know, that uh, we're, you know, our county uh, chamber of commerce should be promoting that kind of stuff because we do have public land in virtually every county. We've got our walk-in program that's pushing probably over 40,000 acres this year. It's going to be probably the largest we've Is ever really? had open. Mm, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Because you you see South Dakota, and South Dakota has that recipe down wonderfully, whether it's Watertown, Pier, Aberdeen, Huron. They're promoting hunt bird hunting as part of the culture. Every hotel is welcome. Iowa has all those same opportunities, but they sort of, they sort of lost that in a generation ago, a generation ago, well, they were promoting the heck out of come to Iowa. And it, it doesn't feel that way to me anymore. Yeah. I mean, we're so ag intensive. It just seems like that's our focus. You know, if you look at Minnesota, you guys do an outstanding job of promoting the fishery side mm -hmm. of it and rightfully slow with 10,000 lakes and, South Dakota's done an amazing job with, you know, the grassland, wetland habitat they have and they actually recognize it. And yeah, you won't hear any disagreement from me. I think we miss a, miss an opportunity. And, uh, you know, I've talked to our INE staff because our first pheasant season was 1925 in Iowa. And, uh, so we're going to be on our hundred hundredth year here coming pretty quick. And so, you know, I've mentioned that to our INE staff that, you know, we ought to do some kind of promotion on that, mm -hmm. um, you know, just to push that off and the opportunities that are here. And uh, I'm not complaining, you know, fewer hunters is leaving a lot more birds for me. So I'm not <laughs> complaining about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, as we wrap up uh, closing thoughts, fellas, uh, Jared, uh, we'll let you go first and Todd will get, uh, Todd will get the last word. I've got, uh, I don't have it on the books yet, uh, but I'm in the beginning stages of planning um, two different 
two different hunts to Iowa this year, one in West Central, one in Northwest with a couple of my friends. Um, I, you know, we just got done talking about Iowa Habitat and Access Program. Um, and I know for, for a fact from, from some of my friends that live in the state, uh, when we talk about that mixed bag opportunity, um, those, those areas can really, really provide that, especially when you get down into more of the quail range. So, um, you know, despite having a tough winter, uh, in some parts of the state, I think Iowa is going to produce this year. And from the amount of photos, uh, from friends and pheasants forever members that I've seen of brood standing on the road here in the last three to four weeks, um, I would suggest everybody start thinking about planning a road trip to Iowa this year. Uh, I will be there. And uh, if you're not, that's fine, but I'm going to be there. So uh, I would, I would suggest buying a license this year and planning out a, a, a trip to Iowa. There's a lot of opportunities to be had. <laughs> Todd, what, what are your uh, closing thoughts for us? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm waiting to see the data. I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I've heard some staff report that hunt numbers look pretty impressive. So that's another one of those wow. mixed species, at go. least in parts of the state. I'm not, I'm not seeing a whole bunch in central Iowa, but I'm hearing some things out of northeast and north central. And then staff in the northwest are thinking it could be their best pheasant season in years. And I'm like, I'm okay, but I'm a data guy. I've been burned when I don't have data. Right. So. I want to see the data, but I'm, I'm thinking things could be pretty good up there. Um, probably the other thing I might mention, uh, especially for our out-of-state hunters, is our legislature did introduce a, a shorter five-day license. We've always had the season-long license, um, but now we do have a, a shorter five-day license if folks don't want to buy the, the season-long license. But. What do you attribute the, the HUN numbers to? Because that's, that's a bit of a shocker to me. I've always associated HUNs with with small grains and I so associate Iowa with um, corn. Yeah. I mean, Huns like short, wide open grasslands, you know, they come from the arid steppe region of Asia. And so if you think about that landscape, it's kind of short, wide open, not a lot of trees. So you, Northern Iowa with all the corn and beans is pretty wide open. And so they always seem to persist there, but um, you know, Huns, excuse me, peaked in Iowa in the late 80s, the highest we'd ever seen. Matter of fact, some of the counts in northern Iowa rivaled our pheasant counts, like 30 and 40 partridge per round. Mm, really? Um, <clears throat> and that also coincided with a multi-year drought, um, you know, 87, 88, 89 was a series of drought years. And so that kind of makes sense. They, you know, they tend to do better out in the Western states mm -hmm. and up into Canada where it's a drier, mm -hmm. you know, nesting season. Um, we had that and they peaked to levels that we haven't seen since and declined. And while this year was a droughty year, last year was a droughty year. Mm. In Iowa, they seem to do well when we have those drier, drier springs. So that's what I'm going to attribute it to. Uh, huh. We'll see if it pans out, you know, one or two, you know, I had one staff tell me he saw 22 huns on his route and I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. But if it's one route, that don't mean a lot. Sure. If I see that across 20, 30 routes, then I'm like, okay. Right. Nevertheless, that is still pretty surprising for um, a route in Iowa. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
Todd, really appreciate all the time and expertise. It's been a fascinating conversation, learning a little bit more about roadsides and getting uh, kind of an update on the state of the state of Iowa and really appreciate you spending so much time with us. Yeah, you bet. I mean, we should have the results of this year's counts up on the website the first week of September. So, um, you know, have folks dial in and take a look. And I will be reviewing those. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could call uh, uh, folks' attention. We'll have our, our own state-by-state -state pheasant hunting forecast and quail hunting forecast uh, coming out, sponsored by Sportsman's Guide. Um, both of them in, in the month of September. The pheasant hunting forecast will be probably the, the third week of September and the quail hunting forecast shortly thereafter. Uh, folks, uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Jared Wicklin and Todd Bogenschutz. I got it right finally. There you go. <laughs> I'm Bob Sapier reminding you to always... Follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, everybody.